0: I'm Kate Northrup
1: and I'm Mike Watts and we're partners in life, love, and business.
0: Welcome to the Kate and Mike show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living. Hello and welcome to the Kate and Mike Show. This is Kate. This is Mike. And today we Whoa. have Shay Stuart Boulay, who is a local woman. Us. She writes at blackgirlinmaine.com. And she also goes as B G-I-M for those who want to keep their typing related finger stress down, as she says. She's Chicago-born, Chicago-raised. And she says she was forcibly relocated to Maine in 2002. And as a parenthetical, she says, how else does a black woman from Chicago end up in Maine? She's a graduate of both DePaul University and Antioch University in New England. And she is the executive director of Community Change, Inc., which is a 49-year-old civil rights organization in Boston that's been educating and organizing for racial equality since 1968, with a specific focus on the white problem. Um, In 2003, she started writing for the Portland Press-Herald and the Journal-Tribune and has her own column with the Portland Phoenix called Diverse City, which for over a decade, she and actually, well, then she stopped and then started writing for them again. But anyway, she used it to share insight and commentary monthly on a variety of diversity issues ranging from race to class to gender relations to sexual orientation and workplace issues to lifestyle choices. She, in 2011, won a New England Press Association Award for her work and writing on diversity issues. And she also has been featured in a variety of Maine and national publications, as well as several anthologies. And in 2016, she gave a TEDx talk which is very powerful, entitled Inequity, Injustice, Infection. And she basically started Black Girl in Maine in 2008 as a way to blow off steam. And she says, and frankly, to connect with any other people of color who are in Maine or other northern New England states, whether by choice or by unforeseen circumstances. So that is Shay. She also lives on a tiny island off the coast of Portland, Maine, which we talked about, which is <laughs> yeah. really interesting. We
1: talked about island life, what it's like to just... The good side and the downside of living on an island or the good, I guess, the upside and the downside of living on an island. We talked about how we can help in our local areas and pay what to pay attention to to continue help moving progress forward.
0: That was really helpful. She actually had some insights on how we can be active locally that I have not heard before.
1: Yeah, because my biggest it is for me, it was just like, I mean, I understand this, but I didn't know there's a lot of people conversations, like you look at the national news and you're like, this is problem is so massive. Where do I start? You know, and where do I begin? So it was very helpful on thoughts on that. We talked about her going back and forth from Boston and how she ended up getting to Maine in the first place that was a great place to start it's a
0: it's a kind of an interesting story we talked about her calendar system and her color coding which I was very excited about what she's learned on in the middle of her sabbatical she's on a six-week sabbatical she has four weeks left and some of the systemic institutions of racism and how we can work to counteract those being a mom and all kinds of things it was a really good conversation yeah
1: I would definitely listen to the podcast Definitely watch her TED Talk. Mm-hmm. That was really good. And then also she just wrote a recent article called The Downward Spiral into Hate A Year After Charlottesville and a few thoughts. It's her latest blog post as of August 12th, but is when she wrote it. So we definitely read that because it talks about just like what's happened in the past year since Charlottesville's taken place. And I think it's a very informative read. But it was just a great, yeah, it was a great episode. I really enjoyed meeting her.
0: Awesome. So Enjoy Shay. All right. Welcome to the Kate and Mike show. This is Kate. And Mike's here. Yeah. And yep. we're so excited to have you Shay. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. So I started following you on Twitter. I think like the year I got on Twitter, maybe in 2008 or something.
2: It's oh, wow. I- so back in the day.
0: <laughs> yeah. Back in the day when my friend Bindu taught me about twitter so i found you and now i haven't gone on twitter in years but i've been enjoying following you on instagram and uh and reading your blog and so i I know that you didn't tell me oh i didn't no well that's amazing so licia licia was suggesting some guests for our podcast and she had suggested you and i was like oh yeah i totally know i mean i don't know you obviously but at least via social media so it was kind of cool to come excellent Yeah, because I lived in New York City at the time and I have always loved keeping my Maine roots. So I'm curious, which leads me to my first question. So you talked about on your blog being forcibly relocated to Maine in 2002. Um, So I'd love to know if you can talk more about your move here and what that experience was like in the beginning and maybe how it's changed throughout the year since you've been here for 16 years.
2: Well, I would say when I tell people I was forcibly relocated, I'm actually being funny, but I'm not being funny. I've been married twice. And when I remarried in like 97, my first ex-husband and I had a really nasty custody battle, which long story short, we had to live in the same place. Otherwise, it was just going to get really nasty. And our son was pretty little at that time. I think it started when he was like eight. So eventually I just made the decision that since he had moved back to Maine because he had Maine roots, that I would move to Maine and we would all just be in the same place so that we would have, you know, joint custody and, you know, our son wouldn't have to like be a ping pong ball going back and forth between the two of us. I mean, my son, who is now 26 and he's a musician, has probably flown more than most people ever have between being a musician, but also between when he was a little kid and I still lived in Chicago and his dad lived out here. So I really, you know, as a mom, you're going to do the best thing that you can for your kids, Mm -hmm. which in that case was coming here. But personally, I really didn't want to move to Maine. I had been here like once or twice before. I thought it was a really pretty place. But, you know, the first thing that stood out was, I'm a black chick from Chicago. Where are the black and brown people at? So when I first moved here in 2002, I can only liken it to feeling like I landed on another planet. In the first few months I would have encounter I had encounters with people that really were jarring to me. I mean, again, this was 2002 and there were people in Southern Maine, not Northern Maine, Southern Maine who would refer to me as the colored woman. Um, I mean, and just, you know, we ended up settling in Saco because I got a job that was based in Saco. And so spending time in York York County at that point, there was like no racial diversity. And the first job I had here uh, was in social services, which had been initially my background in Chicago. And so I was working as the, I think it was called the resident services coordinator for a um, property management company that worked with low income families. So we had a portfolio of properties throughout southern Maine and parts of New Hampshire. And there were places that we would go, like Alfred, Maine, or Rochester, New Hampshire. And I was just blown away. I mean, and then, you know, I would have people staring at me, not knowing how to deal with me. And so oddly enough, that was what prompted me to start writing. About race, just because I needed a healthy vehicle to park my feelings. Growing up in Chicago, it's a pretty sizable, you know, black population. Chicago is one of the places that when the Great Migration happened, black folks from the south came to cities like Chicago in the north. And I grew up in a predominantly black space, though I attended schools that were predominantly white magnet schools. So, you know, being around white people didn't freak me out. I mean, both my husbands were white, but being in a space where there was no one that looks like you, where there were no places where you could buy makeup. I often tell my young black friends who live in Maine, we've come a long way, baby. It's like the old cigarette ad. And when I say that, I'm talking about, I could not go to the Maine mall and buy makeup. There was no makeup for women my color. the first few years that i lived here there really was no place for me to even get like a haircut i had to go to boston so (laughs) i really i had a lot of stuff to park and i would say that it's interesting now because i'm known for doing this work around race but that really was never my career intention in fact when we first moved here i applied to graduate school in boston with the intent of getting a PhD in African-American studies. I have an undergraduate degree in African-American studies. I ended up going to graduate school in New Hampshire and getting a master's in nonprofit management just because I realized that it wasn't feasible to live in Southern Maine and go to graduate school in Boston and have a job and a kid. So somewhere along the way, just like all of my various skill sets sort of came together and almost five years ago, I took my current position, which is based in Boston, the Executive Director of Community Change Inc. And we are to our knowledge, the oldest continuously running anti-racism organization in the United States. So it was really sort of this perfect match in the sense of it's allowed me to sort of pair my management skills with my interests around race It was also great for me in the sense of it was really hard working in Maine. Again, as a black woman running small nonprofits here at at a certain point, it was just really challenging. So now I feel like I'm in this happy, you know, as happy of a space as I can be in living in Maine and that I have work that gets me out of Maine regularly. It gets me in spaces with people of color and just sort of a different mindset. And yet I get to live here and enjoy the beautiful things about Maine.
0: Cool. Wow. That is quite the journey. Thank you so much for sharing your experience about that. I mean, 16 years, a lot has changed. I mean, at least about in terms of Portland itself, right? Oh, what's been your experience with how things are now? Obviously, you still love getting out, which I completely appreciate.
2: I would say that one of the biggest changes that for me is very noticeable. I think that there's a lot more of a willingness to talk about difference. And I'm talking not just race, but gender and other types of difference that you didn't see 16 years ago. When I first pitched the idea, I mean, most people know me from the blog, but I actually started writing for some local publications. The first publication that I wrote for was actually the Portland Press Herald. Back in the early 2000s, they had a column in the editorial section called Community Voices. And I called it, yeah, that's the column where all the people who are non-white, they let us, you know, have a, have a word, have something to say. And I submitted a guest piece and eventually was added to the rotation. I think I wrote like every six to eight weeks. And while it was nice, I thought, you know, I really want to go a little bit deeper with this. So I had this idea, like, wouldn't it be kind of cool if one of, at that time we had the Portland Phoenix and the Casco Bay Weekly in terms of alternative papers, I I pitched them about what about having a column written by this black woman from Chicago who sort of examines difference in Maine. And when I say difference, I wanna be clear that though people know me for talking about race, I was deeply fascinated about the class differences that I saw here. I feel like class is something that we don't speak about, especially in the context of white people. So coming from Chicago, I noticed a layer of poverty with a predominantly white population that was really mind-blowing to me in the sense of, like, you know, I mentioned a few minutes back, doing work in Southern Maine and working with low-income families, like, at that point, like, 99.9% of them were white people. Um, And so I was really just sort of fascinated by those intersections. So I pitched a couple of papers, never got a response from a few, but the Portland Phoenix agreed to give me a column. And so I started writing for the Phoenix in, like, 2003, up until about i want to say 2012 or whenever they sold the paper and then i eventually came back and then the blog was sort of added but one of the differences to me is that now it is not uncommon to see race mentioned with some of the local media i most certainly am noticing in terms of the arts programming i know there's the theater ensemble of color i believe i mean there's just a lot of projects that are being supported by people of color There's also sort of the visual piece of it that Portland, I believe right now is about 84% white. Now I realize that's pretty laughable if you think about a, a major city, but in the context of Maine, that is pretty amazing to see that sort of shift in a relatively small period of time. I mean, clearly a lot of that has been driven by immigration from a lot of the folks that have come from the various African nations, but there is a real uh, you know, shift. I mean, I think about even Bon Appetit just named, you know, Portland, Maine as what the restaurant city of the year, and so many of the places that they named really are not places that you would expect to find in Maine. I mean, it's really sort of a shifting away, even in terms of the food scene, from sort of the traditional seafood. You know, you've got like, I think there's a place on there, I wanna say that, you know, Foga, there's, you know, Korean food. So there's a real, I think, hunger for diversity, something outside of that New England white experience that's going on in Portland. I mean, it's,
0: I grew up here and then I left for 10 years. And then coming back, we came back in 2012, and I think one of the reasons we also felt like, oh, this is a place we could raise our family is because it has. there's been a shift. Now, compared to the rest of the world, it's maybe a small shift. But like you said, for Maine, 84%, white is actually low. So yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> now, I would love to know, regarding your work with Community Change Inc, two questions, one is, So if it's one of the, you said it's one of the longest known organizations doing anti-racist work? Right. Yeah. What do you think contributes to the sustainability and and why do you think it has been able to be stable so long?
2: Well, I would say that one, we are a small organization. I mean, from a revenue perspective perspective we only broke out of like the $200,000 mark, actually we broke $200,000 in revenue for the first time ever only two years ago. I think by the fact that you know, we were founded by a white guy who had a you know, significant level of wealth and he was able to obviously invest a lot in the organization but keeping it small. But we don't study racism in the context of the conversations that are happening in the media. We actually you know, study structural inequity. And clearly when you look at the structures that we have, the criminal justice system, healthcare, education, nothing has changed. CCI was formed out of the Kerner Commission Report, which was issued in early 1968. And just to give your listeners a quick sort of, you know, visit to the way, way, you know, back in the way, way back machine. (laughs) In the 19th, in 1967 in Detroit and other cities in the United States, there were a lot of race riots. Things were extremely tense to the point that the federal government was like, hey, what is going on? Why are these black folks like what's going on like we gotta like we gotta squash this so they convened a commission of various folks that included governor otto kerner and they were charged with like finding out what the heck's going on and what can we do about it well really mind-blowing given that this was like given that this was like 67 but they came back in early 68 and said the problem wasn't in communities of color it was this underlying structure the underlying infrastructure that things were unequal that folks in those communities did not have access to the same resources as white folks. And that the only way you were going to change things around was by making a systemic shift in terms of acknowledging the role of whiteness and looking at how it disproportionately disadvantages folks of color, which at that time were primarily black people. And it gave, this report gave like a list of things that needed to be changed. Well, the founder of CCI, who only passed away last year at 93, was a minister, Horace Selden. He had been working in Roxbury at the time, which is at that time, predominantly black community in Boston, historically black community, I should add. And he really felt moved as a white man that like, hey, I have to take a role in dismantling systemic racism. And so our work has always focused around education and activism and supporting the work that's being done in communities of color. And when you look at like from 68 to where we are right now, Nothing much has changed. I mean, we had what I call the honeymoon period when Barack Obama was elected, and many people who don't understand systemic racism thought, oh my God, America's finally post-racial. It was great. We got our first black president, but nothing changed in terms of who is in power, who controls things. You just have like one black guy. And obviously, since uh, 2016, we've definitely, you know, seen this huge shift. And to some degree, it's like we're back where we were 50 years ago. So at the moment, that's, you know, I guess kind of why we've been around for so long, which is also really sad to me because we just celebrated our 50th anniversary at the beginning of summer. And it was really hard for me to put together my remarks. I mean, it's remarkable for a nonprofit that's that small to stay around for 50 years. But it also speaks to just how insidious racism is that, you know, ultimately over 50 years, I'm like, nothing's changed. I mean, more people are aware, but we're still fighting these systems. And for me really thinking about what does that mean moving forward as the executive director, like what can we do to move people from individual awareness to actually doing the work in their communities to help dismantle systems or to shift those systems?
1: So can, can we walk through like an example Cause when you talk about systematic structures that are in place and you mentioned a few like healthcare, criminal justice. So can we just start with, can I just walk through? So to help basically the end. Oh,
2: absolutely.
1: Okay. So if we take the criminal justice system, there is a, there's a national organization, like there's federal and then you have state and locals, right? Right. So can you take it from the big picture of, so people can fully understand like, how is it, let's just start at the national or their federal level, like how are we, is there systematic oppression that is happening on the federal level of the criminal justice system?
2: I'm going to just give you, I think, an example that I think might really resonate with folks right now. If people are of a certain age, I would say at least they were old enough to be aware of what was going on in the 1980s. The crack cocaine epidemic really decimated communities of color. Basically, folks were addicted to crack cocaine, sort of at the same levels that we're seeing folks being addicted to opioids in white communities right now. However, we didn't treat the crack cocaine epidemic as a public health crisis. We treated it as a criminal justice issue. So, what happened was we changed and we tightened laws so that folks that were caught with X amount of, you know, ounces of crack cocaine were sentenced to longer terms in prison. Whereas at the same time, if someone was caught with powdered cocaine, uh, there was a discrepancy in the sentencing. But then when you look at who could afford to buy powdered cocaine versus who could afford to buy crack cocaine, you can see that visual there. Powdered cocaine was very expensive. Therefore, it meant most of the people who were really dabbling in that sort of drug, they were white. They were fairly, you know, well off. So they got basically, if they were arrested for possession, they got a slap on the wrist. If you, you know, possessed X amount of crack cocaine, you were pretty much put in prison. We instituted three strikes and you're out. So you had whole communities starting in the 1980s, disproportionately made up of black and brown folks, where suddenly people were being thrown, you know, locked up for long periods of time. Which obviously has an impact on communities. Now, let's go, you know, let's fast forward to, you know, the past couple of years where this opioid epidemic has reached really epic proportions. And what's fascinating about it is when you look at who the average opioid user is, it's not a person of color, it's a white person. You think about, there was an article in the Washington Post about a year, year and a half ago, showing us sort of the human faces of the opioid crisis. And I remember there was family that was highlighted that lived either in Yarmouth, Maine or Falmouth, Maine, Mm. really well-to-do white family dealing with a kid who had this addiction problem. And the language that we use around, you know, opioid addiction Is humanizing, which is great. I mean, we, I don't think addicts should be criminalized, but the problem is that historically, when it was, we're talking about black and brown people, they were criminalized. I mean, now, you know, you've got folks looking at, well, what can we do to get more treatment options? Well, why couldn't we do that in the 1980s in black and brown communities? Exactly. That's, I think for me, like the clearest way that you can see that. Let's take it on a local level. I think in the past few years, anybody who has been a part of social media has almost certainly seen a video of somebody of color being stopped and, you know, and sometimes dealing with some really nasty stuff that comes out of that. I think about how when my son started to drive and how it was a scary experience You know, knowing that he could be stopped and, you know, he's probably been stopped way more times than the average white person has. And he's never been arrested. He's never, you know, really gotten a ticket or anything like that. So thinking about like the issues around implicit bias, you know, who when a police officer stops you on the local level, how they come and approach your car often is determined by the biases that they hold. If they see you as a you know, nice middle-aged white woman, then they're not gonna necessarily have their hand on the gun right away and speak to you in a demanding way. But that doesn't you know, always flow the same way for people of color. I have white girlfriends here in Maine who think, you know, they, they're honest and they, you know, and I appreciate their honesty, but they talk about being pulled over when your registration lapses, since in this state they don't send you a little reminder, like in other states, to stay on top of that stuff. Um, and how, like, my white girlfriends can, you know, get off with a, oh, okay, warning, take care of it, especially if they're an attractive white woman, you know, you get the eyes starts watering and the cop's like, oh, okay, okay. It's okay. I don't have any black or brown girlfriends who can tell you a similar story. And again, you know, these are all anecdotal. But then if you look at like data around who gets arrested, who doesn't, you see that discrepancy. And then, you know, I'm sure there are some people who could say, well, maybe certain people are, you know, criminalized. Well, or, you know, it's just the way they are. No, that's absolutely not the case. I mean, I think about a recent situation in our family where my son and his wife were in a local store and the situation escalated in a way that I've had white friends say that never would have escalated. You know, what started off as a, can I see the manager became the police being called. And my son was the one who asked to see the manager. So that's when I talk about systems, if that makes any sense.
1: Yes, it does. And then- as because like when we watch, you know, it's like the scale of where we can help as individuals in our local communities, right? So I guess how do you take let's, you know, just like the opioid epidemic or even how people are being jailed in your local town, like what can we do? Let's just use Yarmouth, Maine or Falmouth, Maine if we see injustice. Because I feel like one time when we have these you know, these conversations with people, sometimes you see things on like CNN or whatever. And it's like, well, that's a huge thing for the whole country to fix. But then it's like, okay, well, I'm here in Maine. So what can I do in Maine to, once I see this injustice going on, what is an action that we can take as local citizens?
0: Well, because you I did say in your blog that we have, you said it so well, we've, we've reached the end of the awareness yes. building train. Right. So right. then what?
2: Well, I think what it goes, you know, what it comes down to next is using criminal justice, like actually thinking about who are the people being, you know, who's your local sheriff? Who are the people who actually work in your police department? I know that in certain departments here in the state, I mean, there's been a real push to try to bring on officers of color. And yet at the same time, I don't know if I, you know, I wouldn't want to be a police officer working in a predominantly white space. But at the same time, what sort of education and training are those police officers getting? You know, I think that that's a huge part of it. Looking at the arrest locks, who's getting pulled over in those towns? You know, is it folks of color driving through? Is it white folks? But I think really having conversations with your local law enforcement to really get a sense of what is their mindset when they see a person of color in that town. We most certainly know that, you know, Maine has this reputation of being the whitest place. And at the same time, you know, that's a lot of truth to it, but I often think, well, is it actually welcoming? I think back to when we first moved to Maine. I mean, my husband and I, then husband and I at the time, we were like pulled over, you know, and I always joke like, well, he often used to tell me, I have never been pulled over as many times in my life as when I married you. And I said, well, that's what happened when you married a black lady. Like suddenly some of your white privilege started to wear off and you know, it's suspect. You know, I, I say all that to say, really engaging in conversations within your local community look and see if you can spot any types of disparities in your own community and then look at ways in which you can address that at the local level
0: thank you thanks so something that you mentioned in your ted talk which i thought was incredible is that you know sometimes you just don't feel like talking about race and you would like to just be a woman living your life so I'm curious with the work you do, which is obviously really intense work, both pers- both with your personal blog and professionally. You recently took a sabbatical.
2: How yes, long was your sabbatical? I'm actually in the middle of sabbatical now. I don't oh, return to sabbatical. work. Until, yeah, I don't return to work until September 10th. Oh, um, thank you for I am,
0: to us on your sabbatical.
2: No, no, no worries. I realized it was probably the best time. Yeah, I so it's like six weeks that I'm I, I will be off. Have you ever taken this much time off before? No, I have not. It's a pretty big deal given that our staff, we have five people total on our staff. And so to not have the executive director there is a huge deal, but you know, the board and I, my board of directors and I met and talked about the fact that I'm coming up on my fifth anniversary and my job would already be stressful if it were not the added complications of the fact that I don't live in Boston. A year after I took my job, my husband and I have 20 years. You know, we split up. So just having to manage all these moving pieces of my life, just logistically, really was starting to wear on me. And I honestly wanted to leave at the end of this year. You know, I really had reached the mm-hmm. point where I was like, I'm just tired of doing this job. Like, you know, my fantasy is to like be a bartender, uh, <laughs> like write a novel, just something that just seemed easy to me. I know bartending's not easy, but it just seemed a lot easier then the administrative responsibility of running an organization, running the blog, and doing everything else that I do. Yeah. So we came up with the idea that, you know, if I could take off like six weeks, perhaps that would be something that would just allow me to come back and be refreshed. And let me tell you, I put the autoresponder on my email on August 1st, I think can't remember which day I did it on. And it is so nice now to wake up in the morning. And since I don't have any of my work emails forwarding over to my personal email account, I wake up in the morning. There are only eight emails in my inbox rather than the hundred plus that I get every day for work. It's really been nice to not be tethered to my computer. I think that's like the number one thing right now that I'm just like so aware of is like, man, I spend so much time sitting and like working on a computer and really trying to figure out how can I take some of this feeling of freedom and bring it back into my work? Because the other thing right now for me is that I'm actually feeling refreshed enough that I'm, I'm starting to think about work, but actually thinking about it, not feeling bogged down, but actually feeling like, okay, maybe there's some new ways that we could think about doing things.
0: Yeah. Isn't that amazing how a break allows you to think differently? Whereas just doing the same thing every day or pushing through kind of can hinder our perspective.
2: You know what? I think it absolutely can. I know my board, chair and I talked about before I, the day before I went on, you know, on the sabbatical, you know, maybe this is something that like needs to happen every year. I mean, August is a really slow month. It's New England. And, you know, most people are on vacation or they're not in the office anyway. So it was like, it's the perfect month because by the, you know, the 15th of the month, nothing really gets done anyway. But it's just amazing, like, what it means to have a break. And I'm not talking, like, go away for a week, but the ability to really just not be tethered to a schedule in any way.
0: It's so powerful. I'm so happy for you that you're having this experience. So Thank you. you. About, what, four weeks left?
2: Yeah, almost four weeks left.
0: Okay, okay so I hate to, you know, ask when you're, you're faced with four weeks of white space, but of course, I'm like, what are you going to do? <laughs> so, <laughs> Do you have, I mean, do you have vacation planned or are you, is there anything in particular you're wanting to read or are are you a gardener? Like, what are you doing?
2: Basically, I mean, I've been doing a lot of reading and pretty much mindless reading. I mean, I'm—it's funny. I've—I've I've got a book sitting next to me that is work-related, but I've been wanting to read it, *White Fragility* by Robin D'Angelo. But I've actually just been going to the library and taking out the mindless beach books—you know, the kind that you read in a day because they're just—they're like juicy. Somebody's marriage ends and they find love again, and I've gone—I went through like three of those last week, and it was really fun to just like read with no like having. To To process, but just to be in that moment of enjoying something just mindless. So I'm doing a lot of reading. Next week, I leave to go to Nashville for a bit. I was in Nashville a couple years ago. My son and his wife got married outside of Nashville, and I spent a half a day in the city, and I thought it was a really fun space. I mean, in terms of the music scene, I'm not a huge country music person, but I find listening to country music live is very different than you know listening to it on your phone or something like that Uh, and it's also the south so there's the food Uh, so I'm looking forward to uh, going to Nashville I don't like heat but I can tolerate it for a few days just to be in you know to be in another space
0: yeah that'll be so fun I love Nashville yeah I just got back from Nashville a few weeks okay
2: okay great so I don't have to kind of sell you on that because I know (laughs) I've been talking to some people and they're like why Nashville and I'm like It's too hard to explain.
1: We're fans of the United States. We've we've traveled. We have Alaska left. That's the only one. Yeah,
0: that's our last state. There's a really fun hat store in Nashville. It's like a custom hat store. I don't know if you're into hats at all, but if you happen upon it, it's a really good time. It's like they make handmade hats and you can go try them all on and it's a good time.
2: Um, Well, I will have to look for that because I did buy a cowboy hat when I was there a couple of years ago. (laughs) Nice.
0: Nice. It's on a side road. Yeah, It's not on the... I'll try to find yeah. the name of it and email it to you. Okay, so when did you move to the island? Because island living is a really, I think it's a pretty unique choice. And so I'd love to know about your choice to live on the island and, and why, why you did that.
2: I moved out to Peaks in the fall of 2015. And actually, because everyone you know, will ask me, well, how did you settle on an island? It actually goes back to when I was in graduate school. My advisor from grad school has now lived on Peaks for over 30 years. And when I was writing my master thesis, I would often come out to, you know, to work with her. And I really fell in love with Peaks. And apparently the, the, the funny, not funny piece of this is that when I was writing my master thesis, I was pregnant with my daughter, who's now 13. And I made a comment to my advisor and apparently I never forgot it and she never forgot it. I said, if my marriage ends and I have to stay in Maine, I am moving to this island. (laughs) (laughs) And I meant, so apparently I really meant that. You know, 2015, I had a good girl, another friend of mine who was living on peaks. And so I asked her, hey, if there are any rentals, you know, my original plan was to start off with a winter rental, which is really what I highly would recommend to anyone who wants to live on an island like peaks or really any of the islands. I think you should not base your decision to live there based off a summer visit, it really should be a visit that's in the middle of like January. yeah. Because that's when you'll really find out if you like island life or not. Summer to me is not representative of what life is really like on Peaks. I think for me, it turned out that, you know, I had a lot of people saying, oh, you're, you know, I can't imagine you're going to really like it. And I am just absolutely in love with living on the island. It in many ways embodies what I had hoped my main experience would be, which was having a, a community. Yeah. There are only about a thousand of us who live there year round. So you kind of get to know who folks are. My daughter finished fifth grade at the local school there, which goes from K through fifth grade. So once you've got a kid and you're, you know, you're kind of tapped into the, the mommy universe, you really get to know who everybody is. So um, And I really, I mean, there's just a sense of community that is, I think, really important for me. I live in a teeny little apartment. It's basically a Manhattan-sized apartment. It's the in-law unit. And it's perfect for me. It's, you know, 400 square feet. It's, It's really teeny. But I've got a great landlord who, I mean, she's so great. I mean, the first six months I lived out there, I had problems remembering to take my garbage out like I'd leave on a Monday to go to Boston and I completely forget to take my garbage out. And so I'd call her and go, "Hey, can you mind, you know, sit my garbage out?" But I think more importantly for me, it's been a place of healing. I've met some, you know, really good people, made some really good friends. It is a place that I have posted on my personal Facebook page. I'm having a bad day. And, you know, there are two stories that I tell that I think really encapsulates what Peaks is about as far as a community. One time I, I was sick with a really nasty cold, and I'm you know, home on the island and I mentioned it. And one of my island friends, like three hours later, shows up at the door with muffins. She mm. just brought, brought over muffins because I was sick. You know, another time I had posted I was having a really lousy day professionally and I was working from home and I was on a conference call at 7 o'clock at night, door, you know, knock on the door and it's my landlord with a glass of wine. She had seen my Facebook post that I was having a bad day. Wow. You gotta love living in a place like that. I feel like one of the downsides to me of living in southern Maine is that in many ways it feels like suburbia, USA. It's beautiful. But in many towns, people are not really connected. Island living is very different because we're all interdependent on one another. Most of us don't have our own boats. So at some point, we're all going to run into each other on the ferry. And in the wintertime, we only have, have one restaurant that's open for dinner year round. We have like the one cafe for, you know, for coffee or breakfast. And then we have the grocery store and, you know, the private club, the Legion you know, the American Legion Hall. So you really get a sense of who people are. And ironically enough, though I, you know, I was born and raised in Chicago and I work in Boston and I've, you know, been to a lot of large cities. I really like living in this community that is so small and so like just close knit that, you know, my kid can wander around the island all day and I don't have a worry. Yeah.
0: That's great. That's so good.
1: (laughs) What's What's the most challenging part about living on an island?
2: Well, I'm going to be honest. Now that I'm like three years out of the, you know, the marriage thing and I I think about dating, I'm finding like people, men like the idea of coming to an island maybe once in a while, but logistically (laughs) it's sort of a challenge. I mean, you think about where Peaks is. So if, you know, if you live, you know, I think about, I was seeing this guy briefly last year he lived in Gorham and he never wanted to come over because he was like, wait, I have to drive, then I have to pay to park my car, and then I have to, like, be beholden to this ferry schedule, it's like, yeah, that's, that's, that's real, and at the same time, you know, when I am home, and I'm, you know, kid-free, you know, I have to think about, do I really want to get dressed and go over into town to meet somebody, and I, it's like, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've done that a few times and it's like, oh man, I wasted my perfectly good energy on a Saturday. They're like, put clothes and makeup on to go take the boat over and you were just a dud. So I definitely think that, and it's something that I know other middle-aged women who live on the island who are, you know, divorced or single. And, you know, it's something that we lament that I do think that living on an island is, is a complication for dating. It most certainly it becomes a complication in terms of just the logistics of managing your life. You definitely become, if you stay longer than a year, you become, you know, you learn all of the boat schedules, but you also have to put a lot of thought into what do I need when I'm home? Most of us live in spaces where if we run out of something, we can run over to the grocery store or we can go to Target. When you live on an island in the wintertime, we're not running anywhere. In fact, the grocery store truck has a a slogan. If we don't have it, you don't need it. And it's very true because even the island grocery store, when they run out of stuff, you know, no one's magically bringing in more milk until it's actually milk delivery day. So, you know, you can go to the store. This happened to me early on where I'd go with a list and, you know, I'm going to make, you know, get this stuff and it'd be like half the stuff wasn't there because it had all been sold you know, prior to my arrival. So you have to be able to be pretty flexible. You definitely don't let yourself run out of food. <laughs> and if you know that, the, you know, bad weather's coming, you absolutely are stocked up. I mean, I live in a teeny place and I have a stockpile of food because you just never know what you're going to need. So I think like managing things like that. I mean, just the other night, a girlfriend of mine came up from Connecticut with her husband and I ended up meeting them in Saco and she was running late. And I had to say, hey, man, I live on an island, like, the boat waits for nobody, so where the heck are you? Yeah, totally.
0: Sometimes I feel like that, having a toddler and a new baby, that, like, we show up on time, and then if somebody else is late who's, like, a single person, you know, with nothing, whatever, I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> with
2: two small children <laughs> no it's just like it, it is exactly that same feeling um, because people really don't understand that like when i say i'm meeting you at five o'clock if i you know come over and i meet you which generally is probably closer to five i'm already thinking about which boat am i taking back home yes. you know if you're just an, an acquaintance I might, you know, the 715 or the 815. If you're somebody really cool, you might be worth the 915 or the 1030. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, what a great filter for dating too, right? To think about
0: like either A, if this person makes me feel like I want to get off the island, well, that's probably a good sign. And B, if he's making the effort to come to the island, that's also a very good sign
2: oh yeah no it absolutely is I mean I definitely feel like it says a lot when you know guys like hey you know how about I come over to the island for a drink at you know one of your your drinking establishments like hey that's wonderful you've you know made my life so much easier you know the downside is if you know the person sucks as a human being then it's like oh man they're stuck on this island
0: on the island
1: <laughs> you gotta like have a backup plan for like okay, who's got the boat on the island that I can borrow I know, if on the date night if necessary or something?
2: Exactly, exactly. So yeah, I mean it's so. I'm living can be a mixed bag, but overall it still works for me. Like I said, this'll, this is coming up on my third year pretty soon and I have no plans to leave. I've been toying with the fact that maybe I might actually consider buying a, you know, a small house if I can find one on the Island at some point, but I it's mostly, it works for me.
1: That's like a business I just thought of. You could have a app dating service for Island life. (laughs) you want your partner out sooner than yeah it's just like come pick them up or something
2: that and we love you know some chinese food delivery on the island since that's the other downside of island living food is not delivered to us in the sense of, you know, if you have a night you want to uh, not cook and you want to, you know, have takeout or you want delivery service, there's no delivery. The only thing that you can get is at the grocery store in the back. They've got a deli counter and they make pizza and sandwiches. And, you know, heaven help you if they run out of pizza, which has happened several times to me. There's no pizza for you that night.
0: <laughs> oh, my wow. gosh. Was, we had some friends visiting or who had just moved from New York City and they came and we wanted takeout. They were, we were here in Yarmouth. And we wanted to take out, and they were like, "Oh, just call Uber, you just you do Uber Eats." And we were like, "Oh no, I don't think you understand." <laughs> Yeah. You know, in Yarmouth, we can get pizza delivered, but that's, that's the only thing. So I I understand slightly, but only slightly your experience with that. Now it sounds like, okay, so between the job, the co-parenting, being a grandmother, and also living on an island and your blog and your upcoming podcast, you have a lot going on. So obviously this is not news to you. So (laughs) what do you, do you have any, you know, do you have any tips or ideas about how you keep track of everything and how you navigate all of that?
2: It probably helps that I am a pretty type A person. I actually have fun putting things onto my calendars. I have three calendars. Up until this year, I, I didn't use Google Calendar at all, except for with my co-parent. But my staff was really annoyed, our office manager, specifically because she would never know when I was in Boston, where exactly I was Uh like you know I know she came in this morning but I have no idea where she went if someone called and so I realized like oh man I should probably put like you know I I should just be like everyone else and use the damn google calendar thing and so now I I mean I've got like two paper calendars and the google calendar which I, I like because it like reminds me of stuff I rarely ever forget things it's just sort of like how I'm wired yeah. um, to-do lists are sort of like fun things for me i mean because people do ask me how the hell do you keep track like you yeah. rarely ever forget anything and i like i actually just think it's sort of just how i'm wired i'm like what's funny is in the past year i've become a little bit more forgetful but i realized that my level of forgetfulness isn't really someone else's And that's more like the brain fog thing of being middle-aged. But for the most part, I think that the way I live and the way I do things, it would not work for most people. I do build in downtime. I'm a big, I mean, I love yoga. I've been studying yoga for 10 years. Prior to taking my job, I used to go to class like five to six days a week. Um, Obviously, I don't go to class five to six days a week anymore. If I'm lucky, I make one class a week and I've like just restarted my home practice. Mm -hmm. Um, because I find that yoga definitely keeps me centered that along with, I'm a big fan of things like massage therapy, acupuncture, and now therapy as other just tools to help me be present in my life, which when I, you know, do all of those things helps me to sort of manage all of that external stuff.
0: Totally. great. I
2: also believe in starting your day. It's a weird habit of mine that I picked up from my dad and my grandmother. When I was a kid, you know, my, both my dad and grandmother were from the South and they would always get up really early in the morning, like an hour and a half before they actually had to get up just so that they would have time to just sit and have their coffee and be present. And that's actually something that I do. And I find for myself that you know, I'll get up really early. Even if I have to take like a 6.15 boat to get into Boston, leaving my house, I will get up at 4.30 so that I have time to make a cup of coffee, have some prayer time, meditation. And I do that because I feel like it centers my day so that I'm not rushing, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Um, sense. Like I don't rush. I'm the person who annoys everybody, especially in large cities. When the light is red, I don't jaywalk for the most part. And it's not because it's a fear of like, whatever it's about, well, those are the moments where you can have a mindful moment built into your day. Like you're standing there for three minutes. So take a couple of deep breaths and like, okay, like I can like take a, I call it like my moment to like check in with myself and check out for, you know, check out of the world. So I do a lot of that sort of stuff that also keeps me centered and focused. It's
0: really good wisdom. (laughs) It's the little pockets of mindfulness throughout the day, little pockets. Really, really smart. I'm just curious, what are your two different paper calendars?
2: I have- I love knowing people's systems. One is an old school, I bought it, oh God, probably like almost 20 years ago. It's like a leather filofax thing Uh that every year I have to buy the inserts for it. And I love it because, I mean, people don't really use business cards as much anymore. But when I get them, I, like, stuff business cards in there and sort of my receipts go in there. And it's just kind of, I mean, so much of that now is done on our phones. But I really still like the feeling of paper. It's kind of a weird thing to admit. Like, there's something for me about visually seeing things that helps my process. And then the other one that I, I have now is one of those large ones where the whole month, when you open it, you see it in blocks. Okay. And that's a color coded system that I use on that one that I can look at my day. You know, I can look at any day in that month. And then every, the, you know, the month before I know what, you know, what city am I in on what day? And I also use that to keep track of when, how we book speaking engagements. Uh-huh. Uh, since I still, I handle most of my own speaking engagements, unless the booking for them, unless they're the ones I do with Debbie Irving and which then her person typically handles a good chunk of that. So like I have to have these different systems for the different parts of my life.
0: Yeah. So the big picture one is is just so that you can look at it's it's sort of like where you are, where you're going, all that and yes then, and then the Philofax is like more of the daily minutiae and then you have Right.
2: A- that's the one that gets you're- all the de- right, that's the one that gets all the detailed stuff, including my like, you know, weekly blood pressure check, which I have to do to kind of maintain certain things. Yep. Like we can all enter it there. It's like okay, color code it if it looks really good. And uh, I think I use I use reds, greens, blacks, and purples. And they all have sort of their own meaning.
0: I love this so much.
1: Oh Kate, I think you found your true calendar <laughs> sister. Here.
0: I'm I'm very inspired by the color coding. <laughs>
1: Kate's obsessed with calendars.
0: Now, what do you do with your speaking? Can you tell us more about what you speak on? Although I can, you know, I can imagine and you had mentioned that you were really inspired by this one particular storyteller. And can you talk a bit about what makes a good storyteller, and how and what you speak about in, in your public speaking work?
2: I am uh, am deep, uh, have been deeply inspired by the work of Studs Terkel. He was a Chicago based attorney and writer, and his style of storytelling. He did a book that I, when probably in the fifties or sixties, it became famous called Working. And he really he went out and just told the stories of regular everyday working people, like you know the waitress, the, you know, people just who had regular jobs, nothing fancy. And so much of his work was about the observation of like life and then just sharing that with others. And it's interesting that I'm inspired by that style of storytelling and writing, but it hasn't quite been what I've been able to do successfully, but I think it's something that I do in my speaking work in the past year. I've actually been actually this calendar year to a fair number of the university of Maine campuses. I have been at Orno, Bangor, Augusta. I did a keynote at the University of Southern Maine this spring for their social justice conference. Did another keynote, which was actually, yeah, my last speaking engagement before I took the break off of speaking for the summer. And that was for the Maine Initiatives Foundation. They had a one-day symposium on race. I do a couple different things. There is uh, the dialogue that I created, which is authentic dialogues, from talking about race to action, where it is, I talk for 30 minutes, and it's a prepared speech. I break people up, the audience, into small groups for 30 minutes, and then I bring us back together. And it's really designed to be a talk that allows people to really start thinking about how they can talk about race and racism and oppression in their personal spaces. So that's my signature talk. I do programs that I do with Debbie Irving, which are really about cross-racial friendships and connections and talking about race. And then I also do keynotes that are designed, obviously, for, you know, whatever the event is at hand. And I think this year we've done, what's almost a dozen or a dozen, I can't remember, between January and June. And most of my fall calendar is booked up. In fact, I'll be seeing another University of Maine campus, Machias, in November. They have a black student union up there and have asked me to come and speak.
0: That's awesome. That's a schlep.
2: You know, it is. uh, I think what's, well, it's funny because I have, I'll be going to UMaine Presque Isle in March and both campuses contacted me. I had to look on the calendar cause I, I thought maybe I could get them booked around the same two or three day period. And then I realized, Oh man, Maine is huge. No, that's not, that's not going to work. But yeah. So a lot of stuff, you know, university campuses, I do a lot of work with I'd say faith based groups and just nonprofits. So yeah, that's, that's sort of a speaking thing. It's, it just sort of evolved. It wasn't something that I planned. It just sort of happened. <laughs>
0: I saw a listing for one of your authentic dialogues at the library in Camden and I'll definitely keep an eye out for one you're doing in the future because I'd love to attend that. That'd be great. That would be great. Do you ever do those if, if somebody sponsors it just to bring you in?
2: I do. I do. I mean, I don't do any of this work. I don't want it sounds horrible, but well, I don't do any of this work for free. So people are well, sponsoring. It's not yet.
0: horrible. You, wow. Should you be doing it for free?
2: <laughs> I know cuz well, I have had people ask like, "Oh, do you get paid for this?" and I just look at them like, yeah, well, Of course you do. Do you know how much work goes into creating a talk? And I think especially because I, there has been a marked increase from schools in having me speak. I actually did some a couple of presentations for the states a civil rights conference in augusta which you know all of the middle schools and high schools have civil rights teams and in the spring they bring them to augusta and they have like a one-day conference and i got to work with both middle schoolers and high schoolers wow which was definitely interesting because that required me to actually tweak a lot of my material which you know i tell people i don't traditionally work with kids I think right now, the youngest that I've worked with is like seventh graders, 12 years. Yeah, 12. And that was at a school in Portland. But working with kids, for instance, requires me to really tweak what I do. But just the act of like preparing to speak. And one of the things that I've learned over the years is that just like, you know, the Q&A piece afterwards when you think you're done can be far more grueling than actually speaking. Yeah. Because I have no idea what people are gonna ask and I you know, I wanna meet them where they are in that moment. Yeah.
1: I know you haven't worked with that many kids, but I'm just curious from your work they are doing, like is there the differences between giving a talk to a group of kids in the Q and A portion versus a group of adults?
2: I would say that some, depending on the kids, sometimes their questions have really blown me away. And I think that there's more of a willingness to be open just because they don't have, you know, 30 or 40 years of sort of biases built up. I would say that when I was at the civil rights conference, I was really blown away at the level of thoughtfulness these kids had around approaching sexuality, gender, Just even being mindful of pronouns, which, you know, that's become something more and more. I know on both of my emails, I now mention my preferred pronouns, and it's something that I try to be really mindful with when I'm speaking with a group of people, you know, asking people to introduce themselves to let me know their pronouns, because no longer can we make an assumption based off what we think we see. Yep. And so to see that level of thoughtfulness happening in a small rural state, that actually gives me a lot of hope it's hopeful for me that, you know, there's a generation coming up, even though Maine is still, you know, one of the whitest States where they're really starting to kind of think outside of the box and the fact that, you know, they're willing to bring, you know, bring in someone like myself to work with kids. is just, it's amazing.
0: I love hearing that. Mm -hmm. Thank
2: you. Thank you for the conversation.
0: It's really a pleasure to get to know you.
2: Well, thank you for having me. Yes. That, that hour went by pretty quickly
0: I, did, I know so you've got a podcast coming out and by the time this episode is out your podcast will be live so people can look you up and also your the link is in the show notes
2: Knock.com
1: forward slash podcast is where all the details is where the, yeah.
0: the show notes are and where else can people find you where would you like people to find your work
2: well, you can always find us at blackgirlinmaine.com. If people are on Facebook, there is a Black Girl in Maine page on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram, Black Girl in Maine. And I'm also on Twitter, Black Girl in Maine without the E. Oh, without the E. Yeah, yeah. They didn't have enough characters for me to have the E. So oh, okay.
0: there's no E. Surely nobody else
2: took that handle. No, no, but I just there was a character limit when I started my account, mm. whatever that was, you know, back in the dark ages of Twitter. Yeah, perhaps, totally. The, the bright, the, perhaps it was the brighter days of Twitter.
0: Oh, like, I, yeah, seriously. Well, I'm just really grateful for the conversation. This was really fun. Thank you for the color coding. Um, I'm inspired. And I'm just, I'm so happy for you with your sabbatical. sounds Well, cool. thank you. Thank you. And I look
2: forward to hearing the podcast. Yeah.
0: And Thanks. I hope our paths cross in person one day.
2: Yeah, well, it's Maine. It's a small space. You almost You're certainly. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Shay. Have a great day.